it's very clear that the more we can add additional sensory modalities to the experience, the more engaged cognitively people are. And it doesn't take a lot. Uh, in many of the virtual reality demos we do at our, our lab at Stanford, we have a um, experience where there's a tall ledge that people are standing on wearing their head mount display. And fewer than 30% of the people that we show the uh, virtual environment to can take a step off that ledge, even though they know that uh, they're in a room talking to their friends. They feel so engaged that they're really there. They can't take that step. That's Walter Greenleaf, visiting scholar at the Stanford University Virtual Human Interaction Lab and Director of Technology Strategy at the National Mental Health Innovation Center located on the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus. A behavioral scientist and a medical product developer, Dr. Greenleaf holds a PhD in Neuro and Biobehavioral Sciences from Stanford University. He's known internationally as an early pioneer in the medical application of virtual environment technology and as founder of the field of medical virtual reality. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most important health and well-being issues facing employers. My guest is Walter Greenleaf. We'll discuss how virtual reality and augmented reality environments are used to treat mental health conditions like addiction, phobias, and PTSD today, and take a look at what the next decade may bring. Today's episode is sponsored by Pair Therapeutics. Pair Therapeutics discovers, develops, and delivers clinically validated software-based therapeutics to provide better outcomes for patients, smarter engagement and tracking tools for clinicians, and cost-effective solutions for payers. I'm looking forward to today. We're going to discuss why we may now be at an inflection point for the adoption of virtual or extended reality immersive technologies and digital therapeutics. As part of that conversation, we'll hear about some novel applications in healthcare related to mental health, behavior change, better aging, and chronic pain management. And we'll also look into the future where wearable sensors, our connected devices, and the cars we drive could all offer a window into our physical and mental state. But let's back up, welcome our guest, Dr. Walter Greenleaf, and start with an overview of the technologies we'll be covering and the terminology that goes with them. So, Walter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's uh, wonderful to be with you today. Tell me a little bit about this terminology. What do we need to know? VR, AR, XR, what should we be thinking about? Well, I think the, um, the main thing to know is that the technology is evolving and changing. We have gone from the terms virtual reality and augmented reality technology. Now we tend to say VR and AR. There's an evolution of our comfort level and familiarity with the terms. Uh, at one point, uh, VR uh, as a term sounded very glib and informal and sort of science fiction-y, but now it's becoming to have some very specific connotations. But there are other terms that are emerging too hand-in-hand with AR and VR, and that is um, mixed reality, immersive technology, extended reality, medical extended reality, uh, we're still uh, seeing an evolution of the terms. But what I tend to say is either VR as a catch-all phrase for all the different forms of uh, interactive, three-dimensional simulation technologies, or I tend to say immersive technology, immersive systems, 
But I, I think we still have a lot of uh, evolution of the phraseology to occur. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for that clarification. That's helpful. We'll stick with VR and immersive technologies. Why is this kind of technology so powerful and advantageous in healthcare? There's several reasons. One is that virtual environments, immersive environments are very good at promoting adherence because they can be very cognitively engaging and because we can put a layer of narrative storytelling on part of the experience. The technology has become adherence facilitators. We've had a lot of problems with digital health applications in terms of people sticking with them. But due to the very engaging nature of immersive technologies, we now have some new tools to promote adherence, which is very important to have uh, effects, especially anything involving a chronic medical condition. The other reason these technologies are, I think, going to make a profound difference in as we move forward in healthcare, and in particular, mental health care, but not exclusively, is because they provide a new way of evoking and recording a cognitive response to a challenge or a physical response to a challenge. Instead of having subjective measurements of someone's mood or their cognitive status, because we can challenge uh, our behavior, challenge our cognitive processes with a very compelling, immersive experience. But we now have new ways of uh, being more objective in our measurements of mood, of affect, of cognitive processing. Um, and also in physical medicine, because in a virtual environment, we can capture movement very precisely. We, we have new tools now for traumatic brain injury rehabilitation or stroke rehabilitation, because we can more objectively measure functional movement. So because the clinician can measure functional movement and improvements, let's say, in, in rehabilitative medicine, what's the patient experience like with VR? Well, two uh, really powerful and amazing improvements are brought in by the use of virtual environments. One is because we can make the experience less boring, less repetitive, less like doing exercise. You don't have to have the personality of an athlete to go through the rehabilitation process. We can make it more of a game-like experience or a participatory experience with other people. We can also give direct feedback of progress, which makes a big difference. Uh, if you have a long journey to go on, but you can't see where you are on that journey, it um, can often be discouraging not to feel like you're you're getting any place. The other power is that we can refine protocols in a more precise manner. Being able to measure an individual's response, see where they are in terms of their progress versus their treatment goals and treatment protocols, and adjust dynamically the protocols based on more precise measurements makes a big difference. We now can apply precision medicine techniques to both mental health care and physical medicine. I've heard you talk about VR can leverage the brain's reward systems. What's an example of that? One example might be if we're trying to help someone deal with a phobia or post-traumatic stress or addressing anything that's uncomfortable, or if we want to help people stay on the course of therapy, we can make their experience more of a um, engaging experience because with VR technologies, we can place you someplace else, have you feel like you're with um, other people in a engaging environment, and we can make it fun. We can make it exciting. It can be a challenge or it can be 
something where you you rehab, but it's with other people who also have the same challenge that they're going through. You can see your progress. We can gamify, to use that phrase, the whole experience. And, and that just allows us to bring a whole layer of uh, enhanced motivation. We can take some of the techniques that our, our friends and colleagues in the film industry and in the game industry have used to bring people back to their games and to keep watching their television series. We can take those techniques <laughs> and now apply them to some difficult medical processes. I like that. You've also mentioned that it's powerful because all the senses are involved. The body takes in more faster information quickly. It seems like the brain is firing on all cylinders and then even incorporating new senses like smell. One of the things that's very uh, exciting is that we know that we can enhance the feeling of presence in these virtual environments by adding more and more robust engagement using uh, our senses. Uh, so it's not just the visual experience that one has in a virtual environment. We also have spatial audio. We capture movements of the body, your hands and your arms, and in some cases, uh, your legs and the rest of your body. So you can move around in the virtual environments, pick up objects, uh, do things with them. There's some new technology by a company uh, named OVR that brings a sense of smell to virtual environments in a very robust manner. It's very clear that the more we can add additional sensory modalities to the experience, the more engaged cognitively people are. And it doesn't take a lot. Uh, in many of the virtual reality demos we do at our, our lab at Stanford, we have a um, experience where there's a tall ledge that people are standing on wearing their head mount display. And fewer than 30% of the people that we show the uh, virtual environment to can take a step off that ledge, even <laughs> though they know that uh, they're in a room talking to their friends. They feel so engaged that they're really there. They can't take that step. Yeah. So the more sensory modalities we add to virtual environments, the more compelling they become and the more we can use them to facilitate uh, engagement, participation, adherence. I would be in that 70%. In fact, I've tried it at a little field trip to Meta and could not step off, could not. It's amazing how, um, how robust the environments have become and how we really do feel like we're someplace else. So one of the things that blew me away was in the New York Times recently, just in April, the statement that VR treatments may provide relief similar to intravenous opioids, which is something that is being looked at for the you know 50 million Americans who are living with chronic pain. So this reminds me of something else you've said about how VR can change your brain. So it can change your brain potentially in a way that you're not feeling pain. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Absolutely. Well, um, a good phrase that my colleague Jeremy uh, Baylison uses to describe VR is that it is experience on demand. And because we can create an experience for people that is so compelling, we can distract them from uncomfortable experiences. We can put them someplace else, distract them from the uncomfortable or the painful experience. This allows us to during a uh, um, acute painful process, uh, really grab their attention and take it away from what's going on. And for chronic pain, we can use that uh, VR as a platform to teach them stress mitigation skills, mindfulness skills, and other cognitive behavioral therapy approaches that help uh, address the chronic pain. And consistently, we see time and time again, uh, and validated in many different ways, 
that this does allow us a way to reduce the use of uh, narcotics uh, uh, to address pain. But does it go beyond distraction? Because this article seemed to suggest that sometimes your brain gets stuck in a pain mode and it's feeling pain that may not actually be pain. Your brain could be changed so as to not perceive or feel the pain. Uh, You're absolutely correct. Um, A major part of the experience of chronic pain is a a learned fear response, that the experience that the individual may have uh, exceeds the actual somatic experience of pain. And so what we can use uh, with a virtual environment is we can teach people through different cognitive behavioral uh, therapy techniques ways to address that and mitigate the the experience of pain. We've also seen um, where people often will have a limitation to the range of motion because of their pain experience by giving them feedback and distracting them from the acute pain that they may be having. We can teach them that they really do have a larger range of motion that they can do without pain. So it's really a matter of feedback. It's a a matter of giving them information about uh, how to manage their pain and to reduce that learned fear response by teaching them through cognitive behavioral therapy, some techniques to uh, manage their pain. That's really fascinating and wonderful. So you've worked in this space now for something like 30 years. Why so many years of research and development now seem to be really bearing fruit in healthcare? What about this moment? Well, we've had uh, virtual environments uh, for research purposes for for decades, and uh, there's been a number of really very talented scientists putting their attention to how can we use simulations, virtual environments as part of both education training and clinical care, improved assessments. The reason things are moving out of the research lab and into clinical care right now is that previously, even though we had an understanding of and validated approaches where virtual environments could be helpful in clinical care. The technology was uncomfortable, it was expensive, and it was just difficult to get access to. Now, uh, you can get a really robust virtual reality platform for less than a third of the cost of a smartphone. So it makes it an affordable platform for healthcare delivery and also uh, a platform to help people learn wellness and preventive medicine skills. It also, I think we're getting a lot better at having the right sort of content that is engaging. Uh, We're getting better at having the right development platforms for virtual environments. More than just improvements to the technology, there's been a real shift in our culture about acceptance of technology as a layer in medicine. The digital health revolution has been going on now. It's been enhanced by needs to respond with telemedicine to uh, the pandemic crisis. And, uh, but in general, now we feel more comfortable of having a layer of technology as part of our healthcare. As a matter of fact, in some cases, patients are surprised and disappointed if we're not leveraging technology. I think the other important thing to keep in mind is in addition to the shift in our attitudes about healthcare and ways of delivering healthcare, there's been a changes in the regulatory environment to support some of the confluent technologies that support virtual environments in healthcare. Uh, and by that, I mean 5G, machine learning and analytics, improved graphical rendering systems, new ways to take data and apply it in a precision medicine approach. So VR and AR technologies are fantastic ways of 
enhancing adherence and getting more objective measurements, but they're evolving hand in hand. And I think they've come over a threshold um, along with the other technologies that are supporting the evolution of digital health technology. Let's talk about an example of increasing adherence, either from research or practice. Well, one example might be how we're now able to help people who have to go through the often um, arduous process of recovering from a stroke or traumatic brain injury. We have fantastic systems that will allow them to have tasks that might start out very easy, get more and more difficult as the patient progresses and using the measurement of their function as a way to dynamically change that progress. But what the user sees is they might be in a large pinball machine playing pinball with the movement of their arms, or they might be going to a very beautiful location and using that as the venue for them to do their exercises that they need to do to recover function. Or we might have a multi-user environment where they're with a clinician and perhaps a few other people with a similar injury and going through the rehab process, and they're playing a game with each other. So your PT exercises that you really don't want to do, you know, become much more fun when you put on a headset and maybe join others. And And probably more importantly is we can give you feedback about your progress. And that's often one of the most important things that it's a long road sometimes to full recovery. But we now know that we can take people who have plateaued in their recovery. Sometimes they've been at one point for up to 10 years, we can bring them back, put them in a virtual environment for rehabilitation, and with the proper protocols and motivation, improve their function, even 10 years after the stroke or injury that they had. Well, let's talk about a mental health application. Well, we've had some fantastic uh, ways of addressing some otherwise very difficult problems using virtual environments. Uh, well, we talked about pain, but we can also look at anxiety, depression, uh, helping people with attention deficit disorder, people on the autism spectrum, people who are dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress. And the techniques we use in mental health care are similar to what we've talked about for addressing a problem with rehabilitation. We can teach people the cognitive skills they need to manage a situation and help them address perhaps their learned fear response if we're addressing anxiety. Uh, So to give a specific example, with um, post-traumatic stress and with phobias, we use the technique of exposure therapy, where we gradually expose people using a virtual environment in a controlled way to things that might be triggering a panic attack or a big problem. We can teach them the management skills to address those things that are triggering the learned fear response. So for someone who's had a traumatic experience, it's very hard to ask them to use their imagination to review that experience. Their brain just doesn't want to go there. But it's important in order to process that experience and to learn the skills to manage it that you do consider it and you do review it. So a clinician can use the virtual environments as a platform for discussion to take them back to the experience that cause the trauma and help them uh, assess it cognitively and learn the skills to manage it and to relax perhaps uh, when they're exposed to the thing that is triggering a, a fear reaction to them. I'm talking with Walter Greenleaf of Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. We'll be back in a moment. 
Prescription digital therapeutics, or PDTs, are software-based medicines to treat serious disease. At Pair Therapeutics, our mission is clear. We are pioneers in PDTs. Our cross-functional team operates at the intersection of biology and software technology, where researchers and clinicians work side-by-side -side with software engineers and developers to create the next generation of therapeutics. Pair discovers, develops, and delivers clinically validated software to provide better outcomes for patients, smarter engagement and tracking tools for clinicians, and cost-effective solutions for payers. Every day, we push the boundaries of technology to transform medicine. I'd like to ask you, what areas of medicine is VR and AR technology moving into most rapidly? Well, it's been exciting and interesting for me to see that there's been a pretty rapid adoption of using VR and AR technology into the emerging area of medicine of psychedelic-supported therapies. As you know, there's been some real excitement and a lot of investment, a lot of momentum at developing new applications of ketamine and psilocybin and other psychedelics um, to help address anxiety, depression, addictions, some very often difficult problems in mental health to address. What's been interesting for me is to see that there's been pretty rapid adoption of applying VR and AR technology as part of that therapeutic process. Now, to be clear, it's not so much people wearing a head-mounted display while they're taking psilocybin in a clinical context. It's more using the virtual environments to, in two very important ways. One is to prepare the patient for the psychedelic-supported therapy process by setting the right set and setting. We can use virtual environments to reduce anxiety, which often people might have before having a new experience, such as taking a psychedelic, mm -hmm. and to prepare them for what that experience might be like, teach them stress uh, mitigation and relaxation techniques in advance and as a complement to the therapy. And then also after the experience, there's a need to sort of debrief to um, to do um, what they call the post-session integration. Mm -hmm. Many of the companies that are developing this next generation of therapy also have a challenge of educating the clinicians. It's a new technique. It's a new approach. It's something where we need the right therapeutic approach, and we can use simulations as a educational context, teach the clinicians of how to handle an adverse event. If somebody has a bad experience, how do you help them if they're angry, if they're anxious, if they're depressed? So both as a way of preparing the clinicians to do the therapy mm. and training them, and then also preparing the patients, uh, virtual environments have tremendous potential. Well, that's so interesting. Yeah. Can we talk about the use of avatars? When is the patient being treated represented by an avatar, or when is someone just in a beautiful virtual environment? Well, one of the um, amazing capacities we have when we use uh, virtual environments is that we can allow the user, the patient, to see the experience from a variety of different points of view. They can have sort of a first-person point of view, or they can look at perhaps a pre-recorded session from a third-person point of view and see themselves and their behavior. What we might see with an avatar is how it's good for role-playing. A clinician can join a patient in a virtual environment. The clinician can take on 
an avatar of a different gender, a different ethnic background, a different age, and also so can the patient. We can make a representation of their future self, and they can see how cutting back on their use of alcohol or having better nutrition or adhering to wound care better will affect the health and happiness of their future self. Okay, let's talk about how that happens. How is our future self created in VR? Let's just say our future older self, if we've been smoking and drinking and not eating well, I mean, how how does that happen and how is that believable? We can have some very robust avatars now that uh, look and move um, like a human body moves. And we can overlay those avatar models with a image of yourself. We can take a picture using a camera on your phone or a webcam and then put it onto the skeleton of your avatar. And you can also, if, if it makes sense, uh, customize that, that avatar, changing its weight, changing its height, etc. But for giving feedback about the future self, what we do is we age progress the avatar. There's a process of bonding with your avatar, I guess, uh, to use that phrase, where we have you be in a virtual environment and you see yourself in a mirror, you wave your hand, your future self waves his or her hand. Then you can look at yourself from a third person point of view, also see the choices you make and the responses. So it's a powerful way to connect you. And we've got the algorithms to do the age progression, uh, all the other things right now. Uh, What we're working on right now is what's the best protocol to utilize this technique as a way to help people uh, shift their behavior and their attitudes. By the way, we also use this approach when it comes to helping people address perhaps to DNI training and help people understand their own biases. You can have an experience of what it's like to be in the body of someone with, with a different um, ethnic background or gender, see what it's like to have the challenges that our culture might present. So it's, a, again, a way to have an experience that can allow you to see what it's like from a completely different point of view. And that can be a very powerful way to facilitate change in behavior. So has that been used for, for example, quitting tobacco? You mentioned reducing alcohol use. Uh, Yes, it has. Um, Hasn't been a lot of use of the future self approach outside of the research environment, but there are some groups that are starting to move that over. But we do use that third-person point of view of your avatar or the first-person experience using an avatar to allow people to have an experience and reduce the anticipatory anxiety of a social encounter, for Mm. example. So someone who's dealing with social anxiety disorder, we can have them practice what it's like to go to a party and make friends and introduce yourself or for someone who is perhaps been sheltering in place during the pandemic and is now starting to return to the work mm-hmm. environment and maybe has some anxiety about that, we can have them rehearse going back to work and talking with their uh, friends in the cafeteria in advance to help reduce the anticipatory anxiety. So another thing that I know that is on the horizon is the use of VR and immersive technologies to improve brain performance. In older people, but also in, yeah, as you mentioned, people who've had brain injuries and, you know, not necessarily just older people, although you've talked about the chain, you know, the cognitive decline or the ability, less ability to multitask that takes place, you know, from the time we're in our 20s. What do you see coming in the area of brain performance as potentially the next fitness frontier? 
it's a fairly um, interesting question because it does get to sort of the heart of the matter of what are the edges of what we can do with VR and AR technology and how is it relevant to some of the major healthcare problems that we have? And one of the looming healthcare problems, of course, is with an aging population. What we see with aging is increased uh, propensity for people to have neurodegenerative diseases such as uh, Alzheimer's or uh, Parkinson's. What we can do to help mitigate those problems and also help uh, with palliative care for those problems if they do develop is use VR as a way to promote better preventative health measures that will such as better sleep, better nutrition, etc. And then uh, when somebody does develop a problem such as uh, Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, we now have new techniques to both measure, evaluate how they're doing, and perhaps provide interventions that might support their care. I'm excited about the work of Adam Ghazali's group. You referred to this when you mentioned ability to reverse some of the cognitive declines we see with aging. Adam's group has been able to use virtual environments as a way to address some of the executive function declines that we see as people age, as starting in our 20s. And every year we slow down in some aspects of our cognitive function. But Adam's group is able to show that by using immersive virtual environments that they can reverse some aspects of that cognitive decline. So extending from that, I think we can come up with just like going to the gym helps mitigate and address some of the physical declines that we get with aging, such as scarpopenia, we can also leverage virtual environments as a way to boost brain health and hopefully prevent some of the neurodegenerative diseases and common decline that we see with that. Let's talk for a minute about VR and digital therapeutics. So what are digital therapeutics and why is VR the latest trend in this space? Well, um, the term digital therapeutics uh, refers to when we use technology such as cell phone, mobile phones, uh, computer technology to provide a therapeutic intervention and to monitor progress. Right now, almost every medical device has been moved from a analog to a digital format, and we're coming up with better ways of leveraging the information we can get from those devices and building them into engaging therapeutic platforms. And there's a whole spectrum of them. The role that virtual reality plays is, I think, promoting better adherence. What we do find with many digital therapeutics is, you know, after a while, they become a little bit less interesting and people drop off and don't continue to go back to them, especially those in the mental health arena. The adherence rate is very low. But with virtual environments, we find that people have a much higher percentage of staying with it. We also see when we use virtual environments as part of education, there's a higher retention. First-year medical students who are learning anatomy, when they had to shift over to using virtual cadavers in a virtual environment to learn during the pandemic, we were able to see uh, tremendous amounts of increased retention by using that platform. To get back to your question about examples of where VR can make a big difference as a digital therapeutic, I I think it starts with um, much better assessments using virtual environment as a platform. Uh, Again, we can take things that are often very subjective, such as when we ask someone, how do you feel today? Or how did you feel uh, last week? Or how did the use of that medication affect you? It's very hard for an individual to honestly describe or accurately describe their subjective experience. 
And it's hard as a clinician or a research scientist or a product developer to build and develop and validate products based on subjective reports. But with virtual environments, we can use them as a platform to both evoke a cognitive response or a mood response or a behavior, and then objectively measure those behaviors. So that will allow us to come up with a new generation of digital therapeutics that start with more precision medicine approach of matching protocol to the individual, and then better ways of dynamically measuring progress. I think we'll also see, because of the ability to bridge space uh, and time with virtual environments, we'll start seeing them being used as part of post-discharge follow-up, a way for people to stay connected with their clinicians in a perhaps asynchronous manner by having a recording of the clinician's avatar that can provide information in response to a question, much better than handing someone a stack of uh, Xerox sheets of paper when they're discharged. So there's a variety of ways we can just enhance communication and enhance feedback to the patient. Which of these are commercially available now, FDA approved on the market? There have been a variety of different VR and AR applications approved by the FDA for therapeutic care, and also a number of that have been applied to pre-surgical planning, for example, or overlaying the surgical operating field with extra information to guide a neurosurgeon, for example, as they're removing a tumor. So there's been a spectrum of approved VR applications starting at evaluation, moving into clinical care, and then supporting post-discharge. What do you think employers should know now and what should they be keeping an eye on? So thinking about the working population and their families. Well, employers should um, be excited about uh, the way this emerging technology as it it gets uh, further out will make a big difference in terms of uh, improving rates of return to work post-injury. I think employers also should be aware that VR is a fantastic way to help promote health and wellness. It's a way to facilitate a healthier workforce by introducing VR technologies. And there's a number of programs that have been designed to facilitate and improve health and wellness by using VR relaxation and stress mitigation skills. And then again, we've had great success with using VR to help address problems with nicotine and with alcohol and other addictions. So going back to the health and wellness relaxation application, so instead of just a cell phone application for meditation or relaxation, you're saying to add the headset. Those are sold separately by different companies, those kinds of modules? Yes. I don't think they're commonly available in the workforce well-being space. Well, we're starting to see a number of um, virtual reality applications designed to reduce stress and facilitate uh, health and wellness being provided to uh, employee assistance programs. They often take the form of, instead of having teaching someone um, a guided meditation technique, for example, to promote mindfulness, they instead may bring them to a virtual environment that is very cognitively engaging, where they need to just focus their attention. That will take them away from some of their worries and anxieties. Other virtual environments are used to teach specific mindfulness skills. They're not out there uh, as well as they will be in the future. I think we're just getting started at moving them into this zone. Part of the problem has been that not everyone has a head-mounted display at home. 
we have some powerful applications that can be used for both clinical care and also to promote health and wellness. I think it was Alan Kay who said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Yeah. And I think that's very much the case with some of these uh, techniques in uh, virtual reality. Is we, we have some validated interventions that can make a big difference, but we're still in the process of moving them out from the academic arena and into the clinical arena and the health and wellness arena. When do you think every household will have one or more virtual reality head mounts? It's a good question. I think that what really will drive adoption is not so much the fully immersive virtual reality environments, but we're starting to see a new generation of uh, augmented reality environments that have a spectrum of immersion, meaning there's a spectrum of how much of the outside world is blocked out. And these will be lightweight, relatively low cost, and sort of like a personal head-mounted display that will do many things. And I think uh, we're all looking forward to when Apple brings its technology out. I think we're going to start seeing a, a pretty rapid ramp up of both how we use VR for our personal interactions, our personal health and wellness, but also f- facilitating things like repair of uh, an automobile or learning to recognize the emotional state of others. Uh, there'll be so many applications and things that we can do or wayfinding in a city. I think it's worth noting also that a number of large healthcare payer networks have been looking at the possibilities of providing a head-mounted display to each of their members as a platform to help reduce healthcare costs and deliver through a telemedicine manner healthcare delivery. The ubiquity of this technology could happen because of uh, just more and more uses on the uh, consumer level. But we also might say it come from um, deeper adoption within the vertical of medicine. I'm not sure which will be first. You've said that technology will steady us and adapt itself. Now, if we look ahead 15 to 20 years, paint that picture a little bit where data is coming from smart cars, video surveillance or Zoom, public Zooms, um, cell phone locations. What's sort of the next phase of all of this? Well, it is pretty Interesting, if we look ahead, there's things that I think will be quite amazing that are in the process of being developed and rolled out now. There's a lot of uh, work being done by the tech titans and also uh, by other groups, uh, leveraging uh, sensors and webcams and other methods to do effective computing. In other words, uh, measuring our cognitive uh, state and our mood affect. Are we paying attention? Are we sleepy? Are we alert? Are we in a good mood? As the sensors become more ubiquitous around us, as uh, our technology starts studying us in order to be more effective as enabling technology, we'll see more personalization. And that means that our smart cars, our buildings, our computers, um, or whatever we're using in 10 or 15 years as a platform for communication and work, will be studying us and changing their behavior based on our state. I guess the, you know, there's plenty of reasons to feel perhaps a little bit queasy about technology that is adapting itself and studying us in order to be more effective because there's always the concern that this information could be used inappropriately. But uh, I think it's on its way no matter what that, uh, with the evolution of uh, 
better machine learning, better sensor technology, ways to look at and evaluate someone's mood state passively just by how fast they type or how fast they're walking, what their gait stride is. Um, I think we will start having really robust ways of leveraging the information to improve healthcare and also improve the functionality of technology. I think the challenge, though, right now is that we need to make sure that we protect um, this information very robustly. And I think we also need to make sure that we don't build into our data sets uh, biases, that we are assertive and aggressive about making sure we build into the data sets that will enable this next generation of medical technology and and consumer-facing technology that doesn't have built-in biases by excluding certain age groups or patient populations or diverse populations. So it's evolving pretty fast. It will be here. And I think now's the time to start shaping the direction. Really exciting and, uh, you know, a little bit scary, but more exciting than scary, I think. Well, thank you so much for that, Walter. I'm really excited to we finally had a chance to bring this conversation to fruition, and thank you for your time. Well, thank you for the good questions. I, I very much enjoyed uh, talking with you. I've been speaking with Dr. Walter Greenleaf about immersive technologies. For more on this subject, visit the International Virtual Reality Health Association at IVRHA.org. To learn more about Dr. Greenleaf's work, particularly virtual reality and digital therapeutics, visit the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at StanfordVR.com see greenleafmed.com, and connect on LinkedIn. I'm Luann Heinen. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with a friend or colleague.